A good Thursday morning to you and welcome to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside the show's technical producer, Samuel G. Brooks. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. There's a story. There's got to be a story to that tie. Can we can we take the Sam cam? This, and- the story to this tie is I was at Simon's one day and I liked it, so I bought it. Okay. That, that's a great that's story. about it. That's yep. a great story. I would like to add on to the story of that tie. And let people know, because I think that there's some insight here. You can glean some insight into somebody's personality, the way that somebody's mind works, the the things that make somebody tick. I looked over 15 minutes ago or so, and we're, we're working away in silence. I'm doing my thing. Sam's doing his. And as he's focusing on something and reading something, he's tying his tie, just sitting in front of the computer, just tying the tie without a mirror, without the assistance of a reflection, I'm assuming. <laughs> Is that a thing that you do, Sam, to sort of keep you sharp? I'm... I'm not bad at the uh, to keep me sharp. I don't know. I don't just uh, I, I don't just uh, you know walk around with my eyes closed, seeing if I can tie ties. That's okay. not a thing that I do. But kind of uh, disappointed. Actually. I, I know. Like now, I feel like I need to get better at the blind tie thing <laughs> because apparently that is a skill that is uh, you know people respect it. <laughs> uh, looking forward to conversations today on the show. Calgary's Mayor Nahed Nenshi and Karen Gosby uh, are both are going to be joining us together. They've been working together on a, an important project. Karen's co-chair of what they're calling a community of connections it's the city of calgary's mental health and addiction community strategy and action plan uh karen's story of what got her to this point is a tragic one uh also a story of courage i mean uh, an absolutely remarkable person author of my perfect nightmare my glittering marriage and how it almost cost me my life karen's going to join us uh in just a few moments alongside his worship mayor and nenshi and then Coming up after nine o'clock, this is uh, a number of different real talkers, viewers, listeners had been in touch with the show. It was was, a popular request. It was a popular request. Michael E. Mann. Everybody wanted to get the Penn State climatologist on the show. Uh, He's got a book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And I, I printed off this one email from Greg, one of the real talkers here. Greg said, I highly recommend having Dr. Mann on your show. He's a pioneer in the scientific community and a significant contributor to our stun- our understanding of our planet's historical climate record. You may remember that hockey stick graph from that was like from 20, 20 years ago or so more than 20 years ago, in fact, I think. Um, but it's it's been 20 years of of adversity on one side. We'll let Dr. Mann tell his story, but he's he's been persona non grata with the fossil fuel industry, and he, and he certainly had his fair share of tangos in and outside courtrooms. Um, his take on what meaningful action on climate change looks like is a little bit different than some, uh, because he'll say, and, and I'm curious to see how he'll put it to us real talkers, and of course we'll establish the context of where we're talking to him from, where he's talking to us from, what big industry looks like here, uh, how revenue is gleaned here, what a changing economy looks like. Maybe our conversation yesterday with David Knight Legg, CEO of Invest Alberta. Uh, you remember uh, Mr. Knight Legg, and he's not alone in this, certainly uh, cynical about what commitments to the Paris Accord, for example, signify. I'm going to ask Dr. Mann about that. We'll get into what acting decisively looks like. We'll get into why he's not a huge advocate of personal responsibility now of course i'm sure he's not going to come on and say you know you should start all your campfires with styrofoam i'm sure he's not going to say we should we should leave our vehicles idling for 90 minutes at a time but 
He's thinking bigger. So Dr. Michael E. Mann from Penn State University joining us in just about 30 minutes time. We're also going to get to your emails, your letters. These are ones that have been sent in to talk at ryanjesperson.com, plus an update on some of the other news stories that we're following, including leading up to tomorrow's show, to Friday's show, which is going to be a good one. These shows are made possible by our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin Well. Right now at Bitcoin Well, well, they've got a couple of, of different angles Obviously, big one for you might be your personal wealth, your personal savings plan, your personal portfolio. How are you approaching crypto? But what about your business? Might it make sense for your business to pursue more of what they call financial sovereignty? This is a conversation that the team at Bitcoin Well is having with more and more Canadian business leaders. And they wanted us to remind you here this morning on Real Talk that they're available anytime to take your questions, to help you plan a strategy, and to make buying or selling Bitcoin safer and easier than anywhere else. You can find the team at Bitcoin Well via the Sponsors tab right at the top at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. City of Calgary, considering how it can truly become a community of connections, or at least how it can leverage those connections to make life better for its citizens and, and, and ultimately provide a model, I would say, for Canadians and people around the world. It's all part of Calgary's mental health and addiction community strategy and action plan. Karen Gosby is the co-chair of the committee that's putting this together. Uh, His Worship Nehead Nenshi is the mayor of Calgary. Thank you to both of you for being here and a good morning to you. Thanks, Ryan. Karen, yeah, thanks for having us. Karen, I, I, w- I want to begin with you. Um, your story told uh, remarkably. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic story. It's a story of courage in your book, My Perfect Nightmare, My Glittering Marriage, and How It Almost Cost Me My Life. Is this involvement as co-chair of this committee the next step uh, in, in your life's work now, you've, you've got the book out. You've been telling your message to people. It's a remarkable story. And now this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in many ways, that book is just a testament of my past life. And when I came forward, um, you know, I shared my story so people could identify with what I went through and uh, they could find the help they needed earlier on than I did. But but this is chapter, the next phase, it's the next chapter. And, and I have a lot more pride, obviously, associated to this because um, instead of me scrambling and trying to find help or, you know, um, understand the situation I'm, I'm in, I'm able to now understand it. I'm able to give that to other people. So it's, it's, um, it's the happy ending, I guess. The happy ending. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, yeah. the, the courage that you show to be involved in this, to put your life out there. I mean, I'm reading right from your website here where, where you say, you know, I, my life of envy. You say I had it all. The successful husband, the beautiful kids, the big house, the white Range Rover, you know, filling my days with grocery shopping, exercising, gossiping over coffees, shepherding my kids. But then you get into how it all became very real how you how you perceived or understood at that time what what abuse looked like how you understood at that time what what addiction looked like or maybe what it didn't look like you learned lessons in the hardest way isn't it safe to say or you achieved your enlightenment in in the most difficult way 
What's driving your work here on this? Well, one thing I couldn't understand, I mean, I've been accessing the system as a daughter, a sister, you know, a friend, a mother, and I, I couldn't understand why why it was so difficult and it seemed like it hadn't changed at all and why um you know people tended to come from similar situations and find uh, the same situation follow them into uh, how the relationships that they chose and you know what they were attracted to and i i wanted to figure out i mean it was very easy to identify george's problem and and be able to diagnose a mental illness but mine was more benign it was really gray and the help for myself and my children was very gray as well so i i just wanted a clear definition and everywhere i went i knew there were so many resources out there and they were great i just i couldn't understand why I, it wasn't having an impact on me and uh, you know just how the continuum of care. Why were people trying to find this at a crisis situation? Why couldn't we prevent it? Why wasn't there a lack of education, a lack of awareness? And and to me, it just seemed like I was always struggling and that just if we started talking about this and we weren't hiding these situations that really seemed very normal to most people, then, then we could um, understand it and orga- organize and coordinate what's out there to be better and benefit everybody. Mayor, why is it so, so? Oh, sorry, Karen, go ahead. No, no. So ultimately, that's what landed me talking to the mayor at that point. Like, you know, initially when I went I can't, to um, have a conversation with him and he thankfully had that sort of, I think I, he had a vision and he knew already what he, he was ahead of me. He was like, as always, and he should have been. But I didn't really know what I, I was going to talk about. But I just knew whatever we did, it would improve the situation. Mayor, how did how did you, as, as Karen just describes, being ahead of it or, or having had it on your mind already, uh, maybe sort of generally m- mapping something out? Why was this a priority for you specifically? How did you get to this point? Well, you know, I don't know that I was ahead of it, but certainly this is an issue that has been much on my mind for a number of reasons. You know, you can you, we can talk about the big statistics. One in four of us will struggle with mental illness at some point in our lifetime. That means every single one of us has a significant case of mental illness in our own family. Four out of four of us will have struggles with our own mental health at some point in our lives, every single one of us, but we never talk about it. And we, as a community, don't see that as the health crisis that it truly is because mental health is health. All of that said though, the statistics are one thing, but what really matters is people's individual experiences. And of course, We're having a significant problem at one end of the spectrum with addiction and overdose. We're losing almost a person a day in Calgary to the scourge of opioid overdose. That's, you know, multiple times what we lose to car collisions every year. And how much time do we spend talking about vehicle safety? But then there was also personal experience for me, which is like so many of us, I had someone close to me struggling with mental health and addiction. And I decided, well, I got to help. And then I realized I had no idea how to help. And over the course of weeks and months and emergency room visits, I didn't know what to do. And through all of that, I was thinking to myself, I'm the mayor. I know everybody. I can make any phone call. One of my best friends is a psychiatrist. I can call her at three in the morning 
and yet I can't get this person the help they need. And in the end, we were able to get him the help we, they, that he needed through strictly a personal connection. Because I'm the mayor, I know everybody. I happened to call somebody who runs a treatment facility and said, what do I do? And he said, I'm going to pick him up right now. And we were able to get help the, him the help he needed. He's doing great now. But that experience really left me with thinking, if the mayor can't figure out what to do, and I'm pretty good on Google, hmm. then how in the world are, is someone who's really struggling, who doesn't have that kind of support, able to make a difference? And as I thought about it, I realized that the scourge of mental health uh, challenges was hitting every community hard. And we really didn't know what to do. And so at that point, I kind of did a bold thing, having met Karen and many others, and went to council and just asked them for $25 million for I didn't know what. Hmm. I just knew that we had to do something. And council went for it. And essentially, I said to the group at the time, listen, our goal here is to create the Calgary model, uh, Canada's first community-based action plan on mental health and addiction. And I want other cities around the world to say, we're going to follow the Calgary model. The only problem is I have no idea what the Calgary model is. So our job is to actually create it. And the only thing I know is that it has to take a systems wide view and it has to put the citizen we're trying to help at the center go to. And for the last 18 months, Karen has assembled Karen and her uh, co-chair, Dr. Chris Eagle have assembled a group of brilliant people across the community only criteria was come up with this plan that passed mayor we're getting you freeze we're getting you freezing up uh, we've got the calgary model oh okay good uh yeah we we had your uh, camera freeze up just for a second there but we, we heard most of what you said karen let's get into what the Calgary model looks like and how is it different? Because you know as well as I do that that uh, it looks like are both of our guests good to go, Sam? It, like, we, we, we got a yeah, bit it of looks a, like we're having some Internet issues. Yeah, here. that's OK. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm working on it. OK, good stuff. Can both of you hear me still? Karen, can you hear me? OK, it looks okay, like maybe, Sam, let's take them off camera right now and, and Sam will figure that out. We are still good to go. Are we not from our we are people can, real talkers yep. can hear what we're saying here? OK, that's good. So, yeah, obviously, we're joined by uh, Karen Gosby and Calgary's Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Now, I know what some of you are going to be saying, and this is what I'm going to be be asking them about next. And, and, I, and I know that maybe some of you will be saying it with with some some passion in your voice. You're going to be saying, well, it must be nice if, if you're friends with the mayor and the mayor can make phone calls and advocate for you. Or, or it must be nice if you've got the financial means or the connections to get the help that you need. But that's not my circumstance. That's not my reality right now, right? That's the, that's the type of thing that we hear all the time. And, and I would assume that this type of strategy, a citywide strategy, is going to address some of these very significant uh, and relevant uh, objections, you know, availability of resources, finances. I mean, these are the types of things that really matter. Looks like we've got Mayor Nenshi, uh, Karen Gosby back. So, Karen, we were just saying uh, with what the mayor put forward, I'm going, I guarantee there's people right now that are, you know, they're happy to hear that some people are getting help, but not everybody can bend the ear of the mayor. Not everybody can get a psychiatrist on the phone at three in the morning. Not everybody can can afford even one counseling session. So if we're talking about the Calgary model that in theory could be applied in communities all around the world, how do we address some of these realities, Karen? Well, and that's that's one of the the reasons why, uh, you know, 
having everything that like ha- having the ability to financially access things and i couldn't find some anything myself i kept thinking what are other people doing that are in um more challenging socioeconomic situations and so for this calgary model you know the big thing is to find earlier access faster access to get them at home school at work in the community and those are the the intervention points at school and in at work you know let's face it those are the three places school work and at at home are where we are entirely and you know it has been fantastic because if we can connect those areas to primary care to the community resources then it doesn't matter where or who you are it's just an amplified ability to um, us all to cross collaboratively collaborate <laughs> collaboratively work together to to just know and everybody to be educated and aware to find the right help people do need when before they're in a in a crisis situation so mayor what what can you do from the mayor's office to make this happen or what what represents meaningful action uh, on the political side you mentioned funding and obviously that's a, an important and good start but what else has to happen Well, I think that the issue that you're highlighting, Ryan, is exactly the problem that we have had uh, a system that's hard to navigate. Even when the the services are available, people don't know if they can afford them. They don't know if they have to pay for them. Uh, It's super confusing. And so what we decided to do with the strategy was rather than just write a strategy, we're also implementing it as we went along. So we had a series of these fast pilots. We called them Change Can't Wait. 23 different pilots uh, in the community to just get stuff on the go. Uh, Another pilot, which is not part of that program, is there is now a rapid access addiction medicine clinic at the Alex Community Center where you can just show up if you're someone dealing with addictions and you're ready to make a change. You just go there any morning between 9 and 11 uh, and they will get you right into the system as you need to. There's also something which I would recommend to everyone called Community Connections YYC. You just go to Community Connections YYC. Uh, .ca, and in one place, it lists out every resource for you, depending on where you are in life, putting, again, the citizen at the center. So part of this is really about access. And I really should say that if you're listening to the show and you are thinking that you or someone close to you could use some help, I would really encourage you to call 211 right away. That puts you through to the distress center. They can help you with urgent care. For non-urgent care, there is now an access mental health line operated by Alberta Health Services. But you know what? Just call 211 and they can transfer you to those folks uh, who can help you immediately. And of course, if you you or someone you love are in crisis right now, call 911. They are there to help you and we will be able to help you. So as Karen pointed out, the strategy has three parts to it. The first is being well. And that really is about interventions at work, at home, at school, in your faith community. It's about catching problems before they start and making sure people feel safe around mental health issues as they live their lives. The second piece is getting help where, when, and how you need it. And really, we learned as we did this that there are some elements of help that are that were missing. There were gaps, and we're going to continue to fill those gaps. But even a bigger problem was that people just couldn't access them. Either they couldn't afford it or they didn't know about it. And so reducing those barriers is really, really important. And I'll give props to the provincial government. With their focus on recovery, they have for the first time fully funded treatment beds. So if you want to go into treatment for addiction today, 
for the first time, there's a bed available for you today. And it's a publicly funded bed. There's not a different tier for people who can afford residential treatment versus those who can't. And the third piece is called being safe. And that's about addressing safety in the community for people with mental illness, but also for people without. And certainly part of that has to do with issues that we learned when we opened our supervised consumption site in Calgary and the impacts on the neighborhood. That has a lot to do with the community safety investment framework that we put together with the Calgary Police Service uh, late last year. You might remember there was drama around that. The Minister of Justice uh, didn't do a great job of characterizing what we were doing, but it will help us develop a new mental health crisis response system. So there's a lot in there. But ultimately, this, the city of Calgary did set aside some money for this, but we need real money. And that really does have to come through the healthcare system and the policing system. That really does require the provincial government to be a very active participant in this. Uh, we had an MLA, Whitney Isaac, on the stewardship committee uh, to help bring the provincial government's perspective. She did a great job. And I know that the Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addiction is very, very invested in this work. But now we're going to have to see that happen at the policy level across the provincial government. I'm seeing, um, I mean, I mean, remarkable commentary from our audience members that are watching us now live on YouTube. And I know that this will resonate with more people that hear this later on the podcast. Emma says, you know, I've struggled with postpartum depression. She says, I've been on medication for years now and I'm the best mom I can be because of it. There's no shame. Get the help you need. An interesting uh, point from Angela who wonders, do we have access? I've never actually, I've never heard this phrase before. I, I kind of can't believe it. Now that I read it, Angela says, do we have access to mental health first aid? Or what about training people to intervene on things like overdoses? Uh, Karen, are these the types of things that have been uh, debated around the table as part of the consults and putting this action plan together? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, the mayor was talking about the change can't wait. We we had an ambassador program and that was such a great, um, the change can't wait because we had, uh, we took a million dollars and leveraged it to 1.275 million. And we had funders and foundations all sitting at the table focused on just the idea of doing, you know, being well, staying safe, fighting help. And one of the things that um, received money from the change can't wait was an ambassador program to train the security officers down downtown that you know are frequenting going around the building and and walking in the plus 15s to be able to administer you know um if there is overdose or just be able to be pure and talk to people when when you know they were walking aimlessly and be able to direct them because they are educated to know how to to um better manage you know the the people that that were sort of wandering around at that time and you know before it was kind of seen as an inconvenience and now um you know there's partnerships and it's just it's it's building awareness and building community mayor i've got a great comment here from brenna and, and i think of uh you know some of the demonstrations I, I was just down in in your city this past weekend it's my hometown as you know down in calgary and and, and while walking downtown i did come across um uh, some protests with some interesting signage. I know that there have been some issues in past and, there, and, and you know, people are talking more about flare-ups of, of white supremacy. We're seeing evidence of, of uh, racist uh, or racism-fueled violence uh, in particular against Asian Canadians and uh, Asian Americans. Um, 
Brenna says, you know, I'm thinking about how upstream interventions can really make a difference with stuff like this, including anti-racism, anti-discrimination, you know, policies that would qualify as pro LGBTQ policies or, or maybe policies aiming toward equality policies need or societies rather need to advocate for policies that destigmatize. Um, how, how does that fit in or walk in line with what we're talking about here, Marinenci? That's a <clears throat> That's a deeply insightful comments. And it's one of the reasons why the work we're doing has those three pieces, because that first piece about being well is really about addressing the root causes of a lot of these issues. Um, you know, some of that has to do with brain psychology. Some of that has to do with broader issues or brain science, I should say. Some of it has to do with broader issues around the community. So all of this stuff really, really matters. And it's about being a holistic in our thinking in how we can work through all of this. And I really appreciate the fact that your listeners have brought up issues like postpartum depression. You know, as a man, I am forever on about postpartum depression because it's something that women don't, women experience and men don't know a thing about. Every time I've got a friend who's a new dad, I always tell him, you know, it's almost universal, right? That a woman who has a child can go through this and we never talk about it and we don't know how to support it, which brings us to the issue of, mental health first aid. So if you're listening to the show and you want to help, you know, mental health first aid is a great idea because the idea is just like many of us are certified in CPR or in first aid. You know, we took that course with Annie, the dummy, um, learning how to do CPR. There are also courses available for all of us to learn how to do mental health first aid. Those of us who work on the front lines, but those of us who just want to be helpful in the community. And that's something that I encourage people to seek out. Uh, there's a wonderful certification run by the Palix Foundation here in Calgary, which helps you learn about brain science. It's called the Brain Story, uh, which a number of people I know have gone through uh, to help you learn about how you can be helpful in the community. And again, I'll say, uh, I think I gave it the wrong website earlier. CommunityConnectYYC.ca is your one-stop shop uh, for all of this work, or you can always call 211. Mayor, there's there is uh, some discussion on our live chat right now. And I, w- and I would imagine, uh, Karen, I'll be curious for your insight, too, on this. And I'll ask you about this uh, in just a moment. People talking about the role that law enforcement plays in responding to um, calls that would involve uh, both mental health and addiction. You know where the question is going here. The conversation around mm-hmm. defunding the police or reallocating police resources. How does that fit into Calgary's action plan? Well, in Calgary last November, we actually did just that. Uh, And the thing that's really interesting about what happened in Calgary is it's the only place I know in North America so far uh, where the police have actively been part of the solution. I hate that term defund the police because it doesn't mean anything, but reallocating to a better call response system and a better mental health response system is really part of the work that is already underway. We call it the community safety investment framework. But what's interesting about the experiment that we're doing here in Calgary is we have everybody at the table. We've got the police, we've got members of BIPOC communities, uh, we've got activists, and we have the city kind of all around the same table trying to craft what a new system looks like. Now, this could fail spectacularly. People could, you know, flip the table and run off because you've got people around the table who don't particularly trust one another, and there's some history there. But ultimately, I think it's the right way to move forward. And certainly that third part of our strategy is all about that and figuring out how to do this correctly. You know, the good news is here in Calgary, we've had good systems in place. 
We have a program called, I hate the name, the DOPE team, the Downtown Outreach Addictions Project. So when people are in mental health distress, um, you know, street involved people are in mental health distress, most Calgarians know you don't call 911, you call the DOPE team. Or if you call 911, they might send the DOPE team, uh, who are, you know, folks in hoodies in a van who can actually talk, talk to you and get you the help you need before the police come. There are programs where social workers will accompany the police to calls. And this is exactly the kind of system we want to build out. So I've always said that I want it to happen that when you call 911, instead of getting police, fire, or ambulance, you get police, fire, ambulance, or mental health. Mm -hmm. And that really is our goal to fix that first response system as well. Karen, so if someone's watching this from, from Vancouver or Montreal or Louisiana, and they say, I mean, this is remarkable. Uh, this is exactly the type of conversations I want to see in my community. You know, what can we apply from this Calgary plan to wherever we live? What would be some of the key points that you would say that mental health or addiction service advocates uh, or just movers and shakers, people within their own circle of friends that want to do what they can to, to, to strengthen people, to uplift people, to prevent tragedy? Where would they start based on this action plan? Well, I, I, I guess where they would start is by having the discussion of um, being able to have a, a continuum of care and any, any age, any stage that people can access care. And, you know, we've just talked about the justice re reinvestment. We've got some great programs that we've been studying. And that was one of the things that, I, you know, for myself, when I was in my own situation and I had to call um, law enforcement to come to the house. It just, it struck me as it was a, an intervention. It was a point of contact where I, I, I could have been uh, directed to a lot of help. My children could and George as well. And it seemed to kind of just fall through the cracks. And, you know, since then there has been um, uh, procedures put into place, but I just, I think that us all working together and uh, moving this forward by just, um, talking more about mental health and being more open about it because you know the reality is is it's in everybody's home there shouldn't be shame and stigma and the more conversation we can have about this the more it can drive you know the resources and the sense of community um and you know the shared experiences so we can all inform and help people get the help they need before it's a crisis situation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about stigma. I mean, your whole story, your whole your book is an exercise. I mean, do you see it as that as an exercise in, in oh, yeah. destigmatization? Absolutely. And I like I say, I I mean, I wrote that book and I bared all and I wanted I you know, it just to me it was so um apparent that it was in every household. Hmm. And I don't think people really recognized it. And I, I think if people could just not have so much shame and, you know, what this shroud of secrecy is what really keeps us sick. And again, I said, it was following me through all my life. I was uh, picking familiar um, relationships that were keeping me in a situation and I didn't want to be in it, but I had no idea how to get out of it. And I just, it shouldn't be that hard. So, Mayor, ultimately, where does this go from here? I know that, that oftentimes th this is where people's eyes gloss over because we're not all totally familiar with how politics work and it's got to go in front of councils and committees and, and these types of things. When, when does the rubber hit the road on this? 
Well, it went to uh, our executive committee of council that we call the Priorities and Finance Committee uh, on Tuesday and passed unanimously, and there was a majority of council members there. So it will go to council on Monday. Um, presumably, it will pass quickly on Monday, knock on wood. Uh, and once that's done, we get to work. So Karen and I have already had a meeting about what happens on Tuesday um, and how do we move forward on that. So there's a bunch of um, stuff in there around how we're going to implement it. The city of Calgary is going to take the lead on convening the group for the time being until we are able to really embed it deeply uh, into the community. And the good news is that usually when you pass these strategies, you go into this sort of stasis while you look for funding. But the good news is, in this case, uh, council has already passed the funding, so we can get to work right away. Mayor Nahed Nenshi, uh, City of Calgary, Karen Gosby, co-chair of the Calgary Mental Health and Addiction Community Strategy and Action Plan, the author of A Perfect Nightmare, My Glittering Marriage and How It Almost Cost Me My Life. I commend both of you for your work on this, and we appreciate your availability on the show today. Thanks so much for making time for us. Thanks Thank for having you. us, Ryan. You bet. Uh, again, that website, if you want to take a look at it, uh, here it is, communityconnectyyc.ca. Communityconnectyyc.ca. You can learn more about that. And, and if this conversation is resonating with you in a painful way, um, if you're right now um, thinking about suicide, as an example, we want to remind you that Alberta Health Services has available a mental health helpline it's a 24 hour a day seven day a week confidential service that provides support information and referrals to albertans experiencing mental health concerns you can learn more at albertahealthservices.ca the toll-free 24-hour number is 1-877-303-2642 our thanks to karen gosby and mayor nahed nenshi the team at Kubi Energy wants to remind you that if you're considering a move to solar, uh, whether it's perhaps looking to uh, add add to your options, or maybe you want to go full-blown off the grid, we're going to be talking to Dr. Michael E. Mann in just a moment. I'm super excited about that conversation. Kubi Energy does this all the time across BC and Alberta in a number of different applications, commercial, residential, industrial, Jake Kubiski, the founder and CEO, was on our solar panel a week ago on Friday. They've got offices in Kamloops and Edmonton, Tesla certified. They've got electricians and electrical apprentices doing all the installs and they handle all the paperwork. You know, like the, the money, the rebates you can get back from some levels of government. They can tell you if you qualify. They take out all the guesswork at kubienergy.ca. Also, a shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping. This is the time of year where they know the, the snow's starting to melt, depending on where you are, and you're starting to envision what that outdoor space could look like. Instead of wearing down the grass and it gets all muddy when it rains, why not get in one of those beautiful, you know, matching or the fit stone patios? You know the ones I'm talking about. Why not? fire pit that the family can gather around appropriately distanced and comfortable outside I think or every maybe house even should be built with a fire pit shouldn't every house you know there's a lot of cities though you can't have fires oh, and you take it for devastating. granted devastating if you, you do live, you really take it for granted if you here. live in a city where you can have a fire in your backyard you don't realize that in a lot of cities you can't yeah it's brutal buddy and the outdoor cook station that's the big one for me the outdoor cook station with like the smoker and the grill 
Maybe even a beer tap there, why not? Or a lemonade tap if you want it to be a little more family friendly. The team at Eden Landscaping does it all at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can check them out under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Let's take a quick look at what's making news right now, Sam. Well, this is a story that I I know is is some of you are perturbed over this as the Crown has agreed to withdraw a public health charge in the case of the Grace Life Church Pastor James Coates. On Wednesday, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms issuing a news release claiming that they won the case. This is the pastor that's been jailed since mid-February after being charged with breaches of the Public Health Act. Do you remember this? This is the church just west of Edmonton, Alberta, that's been gathering full congregation, packed house every Sunday, despite the public health orders in place. You can let me know what you think about that story. We'll keep a keen eye on our inbox talk at ryanjesperson.com. Meantime, Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, says that the COVID-19 variant strain that's established itself in Alberta is spreading in all zones. This is that B117 variant. Uh, Dr. Hinshaw saying Albertans need to continue following health restrictions. They say that of the 4,900 or so active cases of COVID-19 in Alberta, 535 of them are linked to that B117 strain first identified in the UK. They say two other variants, ones that have been detected first in Brazil and South Africa, are showing up in Alberta in small numbers, and they are linked to travel. And a story we're following on the federal front, the Senate passing a bill, C-7, to expand access to medical assistance in dying. Uh, This went into effect Wednesday night after the Senate accepted a revised version of Bill C-7, which received royal assent just a few hours later. This is about a week ahead of a final deadline imposed by the court. We'd been talking about this a while back, that March 26th deadline. There had been four extensions granted to bring the law into compliance with a 2019 Quebec Superior Court ruling. This means that intolerably suffering Canadians who are not near death immediately gain the right to seek medical assistance in dying while people suffering solely from mental illness will have to wait two years to gain the same right. This is a story that we'll follow in more depth uh, a little later on on Real Talk in days to come. Uh, and we appreciate those of you that have taken the time to write into the show. Are we ready to rock and roll, Sam? You betcha. I can't tell you, Real Talkers, how many of you have written into the show saying, you know who we'd love to have? If we could if we could have our wish come true, if we could get any guest, you know who we'd love to have? We'd love to have the author of, well, perhaps one of the most significant climate-based books in recent memory. Michael E. Mann. Dr. Michael Mann is an American climatologist and geophysicist. He's director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, and he's contributed to the scientific understanding of historic climate change based on the temperature record of the past thousand years. Everybody's heard about the hockey stick graph. We'll get into that. It's time to fight to take back our planet, says Michael Mann. It's the new climate war. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us this morning. 
Well, thank you, Ryan. It's great to be with you. And I have to say, I'm a little bit embarrassed after that introduction. So you're, you're too kind, but I've been looking forward to this conversation as well. Well, I'm serious. I mean, these emails have been popping up uh, all over the place for us. And it says something, uh, Professor, because you know, you know all about where we're coming to you from. You know all about the province of Alberta. You know that pipelines are important. You know that this is home of, of the oil sands that ha- have fueled yep. Canada's economic engine for many years. Uh, And obviously there are, um, you know, some significant pushbacks uh, to people who, like you, unabashedly uh, fight for meaningful action on climate change. It's probably not lost on you that you're you're broadcasting into the province of Alberta and across Canada right now. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Alberta really is um, on the front lines uh, of the climate wars, uh, as it were, in in several senses, right? As you alluded to, um, there is this uh, tradition of uh, fossil fuel extraction and the tar sands, the Alberta tar sands, of course, uh, are a major potential source of um, very carbon intensive petroleum. And so while it might be good for Uh, some, uh, you know, for fossil fuel interests and those who profit from them, uh, it would be very bad for the environment. Um, So it's on the front lines of sort of the climate policy battle, but it's also on the front lines of the impacts of climate change. And I don't have to remind your viewers and listeners of the 2016 Alberta wildfires, these massive, the Fort McMurray wildfires, the most damaging uh, and I would call it natural disaster, but it's not a natural disaster. It's an unnatural disaster, the, the, the most costly unnatural disaster that Canada has experienced. And we know that climate change played a role in exacerbating the, that, that tragic extreme weather event. You know, when we have conversations about climate change, it's it's interesting because you've got people. There seems to be a sliding scale of of how seriously people will take it. I mean, there are there are folks on on the one side that believe it's all a hoax uh, that would scoff at the idea that that human, uh, you know, that that humans could impact the planet in, in such a way to 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 exacerbate the impact of wildfires or floods or mudslides or, or what have you. Um, and, and then on the flip side, you've got folks, you know, I mean, on the on the completely other side of the spectrum that are that are doing everything they can, um, you know, from from getting rid of their vehicles to getting off the grid to swearing off meat. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're taking every possible step that they can possibly take. They fight for government. They show up at the rallies, bless their hearts. They want to do absolutely everything they can. And then probably in the middle, uh, there's probably, uh, you know, to pick a number out of thin air, let's say 85 percent of people. That go, you know, I don't want to be a jerk about it. I don't want to actively try to destroy the planet, but I'm, I'm also not looking for major interruptions in my life. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, throwing this piece of plastic into the landfill is not going to kill planet Earth. So so how do we begin to communicate with people recognizing the variance in attitudes and approaches here? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there uh, is this fringe and it's a small percentage of the public. I don't know what the exact polling is in Canada, but in the United States, uh, there is an organization that's been polling on sort of public uh, sentiment on climate change uh, regularly over the past several years. And according to them, the dismissives, these are the folks who are out there denying climate change, picking fights with people online, on social media. Um, they're really emphatic in their denial of climate change. And they're, you know, they come at it really more from an ideological or, or political perspective. Uh, vantage point. Um, They're in the single digits. It's a very small percentage of the public, but we feel like they have a much greater presence because there is this megaphone in the conservative media that sort of promotes this uh, fringe 
movement. And in, in, if you poll people and ask them what percent of the public is in that category, it turns out they'll, they'll tell you, you know, nearly a third of, of, the, of the population. And so there's this, this artificial um, inflation of climate change denialism in our, you know, in our discourse. But uh, I have to say that, you know, the, the old climate war um, was the, the, the assault on the basic scientific evidence of climate change. And that's basically over because people know something's happening. Uh, aside from that very small fringe, people understand that climate change is real, it's a problem. And the new climate war is the effort by um, some of these same vested interests, fossil fuel interests, those promoting their agenda to sort of lead us astray. They're not going to deny that climate change is happening because it's not credible anymore, but they want to divide us, get us arguing over individual lifestyle choices, whether you're a vegan, whether you use air travel. Um, they actually, in some cases, have promoted doom, despair, because if you truly believe it's too late to do anything about the problem, it potentially leads you down the path of inaction, the same path of inaction as outright denial. And so the, this book, you know, my new book, The New Climate War, you know, is really about the fact that we're so close to finally seeing the action necessary. We've got, you know, political uh, wins uh, at our backs now with the Biden administration, Canada, uh, the major countries of the world are ready to move forward. And we have to recognize these obstacles that still lie in our path because they're the only thing from moving us forward. There is great urgency. We have to act now, but there is agency. We can still act. And that's a really important message to get out to that sort of confused middle that you allude to, that they're not against acting on climate change. They're just not convinced that we can do much about it or that we need to do much about it. And those are the folks we have to connect with. There were, I, I certainly can't speak for Canadians, but to speak as a Canadian, you know, two of the, the moves that we really noticed on January 20th when, when Joe Biden was inaugurated, uh, number one, uh, rejoining the Paris Accord, and number two, killing the Keystone XL pipeline, which was obviously huge in the province of Alberta. Um, right. You talk to Albertans, generally speaking, or you may talk to Canadians on the energy file, obviously depends on where they are. That'll shape their opinion, probably on things like pipelines. But there are compelling arguments. There's still a global demand for oil. Pipelines are widely recognized. Maybe you'll dispute this. I invite you to uh, widely recognized as the safest way to, to transport, you know, bitumen as an example, you know, as opposed to trucks or trains. Everybody saw what happened in Lac Mégantique in Quebec with with oil by rail. Um, they'll say that, you know, the world is not ready to wean itself off fossil fuels and it makes absolutely no sense to kill industry uh, in a jurisdiction like Alberta, most especially when the economy is hurting so acutely. What would you say to these people? Yeah, you know, th these are legitimate concerns. I live in a state, Pennsylvania, that has a very rich fossil fuel legacy. Um, coal, you know, helped build this state. Um, it's where we discovered oil in the United States was, was in the state of Pennsylvania. Now natural gas has become a large part of the economy. Um, so we have to make sure that, uh, you know, the individuals, uh, workers, people who work um, in the fossil fuel industry, that there's a transition. We provide them resources because we have to move on. The age of fossil fuels is coming to an end. Something better has come along. It's renewable energy. And if you look at the Keystone uh, XL pipeline, for example, it, it turns out there may be a hundred to 200 permanent jobs. Um, and there are thousands and thousands of jobs in installation of, of new renewable energy infrastructure, wind, solar. So there are far more jobs that are potentially available um, in renewable energy than there are in the largely automated 
fossil fuel industry at this point. But there's no question. We have to make sure that the folks who work in those industries, those families, that, that we help them, that we don't leave them behind. Uh, there is a transition. We need to undergo that transition, but we have to make sure that people don't let, get left behind. And one of the things I like about the Biden plan, it really tries to make sure of that by providing resources to those communities, helping them transition um, so that, you know, they don't feel the brunt of this necessary shift. I mean, they're victims, really. They're not our enemies. Now, there are some bad actors at the very top um, in the fossil fuel industry who have fought to oppose any climate action, who have funded climate change denialism. Um, those are the villains. But the individuals who work in those industries, they're, they're our friends, they're our neighbors. We have to help them out. And that's and there's such a social dynamic at play, isn't there? I mean, you, you talk about it. We, we've had a lot of messaging around, you know, the the uh, there's a group called Canada Proud and they have the I love Canadian oil and gas. And it kind of becomes this sort of exercise in nationalism and it becomes this sort of thing. You know, you're either with us or you're against us. And and, and you kind of wonder if you know, I mean, I'm being facetious, but, you know, putting the blue recycling bags out for pickup is going to insult the person next to you because they're a pipeliner that hasn't worked forever. They're going to perceive you as some sort of a green radical. These are the things that matter in neighborhoods with people that live next to each other. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and there is, you know, there, these are difficult conversations and we have to have these conversations. Um, again, a lot of that is what we call AstroTurf, which is to say a lot of that rhetoric, those T-shirts, the mottos, they're coming from fossil fuel, uh, you know, interest groups who are funded by the fossil fuel industry to promote misinformation and to create the illusion of grassroots support, right? They want you to think that your friends and neighbors are opposed to clean energy, when in fact, statistically speaking, that just ain't true. An overwhelming proportion of the of the population is in support of the clean energy transition. And that's true in the states with Republicans as well as Democrats. So we have to distinguish between this sort of facade that has been created and, and managed and maintained by fossil fuel interests and the real concerns that actual people have, and we have to meet those folks where they are. Look, the example I like to use is whale oil. We hunted whales for their oil, for uh, lamps um, back in the 1900s, um, in the 1800s rather. And, and we recognized that something better had come along um, and that was fossil fuels. Well, now something better has come along. That's renewable energy. It's time to move on, but it's time to make sure that we take care of the folks who are caught up in that transition. You write in your book uh, that you believe that a clean energy revolution and that climate stabilization is achievable with current technology. You know, that, that that's all that's needed really is for uh, policies to incentivize. Um, we did. We had a panel discussion just six days ago on the show. We called it the solar panel. Forgive the pun, <laughs> but it was great. Uh, three experts in solar talking about the viability of it. They're very bullish on the potential. Uh, but some of the pushback that we received was enlightening to me as well. A lot of people believe that, you know, the, you know, whether it's storage problems with batteries or whether it's snow or a lack of daylight. And that's just solar. We're not even talking geothermal or wind or or some of the other stuff, nuclear, uh, that, that it's just not ready. It's just not ready to replace traditional forms of energy like coal, and natural gas. What gives you the confidence that that the clean energy revolution is achievable with current technology? 
Yeah, you know, some of those folks don't have a sunny disposition when it comes to uh, renewable energy and solar energy. <laughs> you, you couldn't um, help yourself. Sorry, had to go there. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't resist. Um, you know, it, there is a lot of, you know, we talk about the misinformation. Um, the new climate war is, you know, look, we can't deny climate change is happening, but we can try to undermine, for example, public faith in the solution, which is renewable energy. And so you have bad actors fossil fuel interests, um, the front groups that they promote, their uh, talking heads um, who advocate for them. Uh, they have promoted all sorts of myths about renewable energy. Um, I go with the peer-reviewed literature. I like to, you know, see what actual engineers and scientists have concluded. And if you look, for example, at the work by Mark Jacobson of Stanford um, and, a, and an independent group of scientists at uh, UC Berkeley who have published similar findings, they say we can get to 80% re renewable energy by 2030. Within a decade, we can meet 80% of our projected energy demand with renewables, 100% by 2050. And that's with existing technology. So, you know, yes, there is a transition. We can't do it immediately, but we can massively scale up renewable energy to the point where it will meet projected uh, energy demand in the future. And that's just with existing technology. There's no question that we will develop new uh, economies of scale, new innovations as we move forward. You sort of learn by doing and deploying. And so we'll get even more efficient. But even with what we have now, we can get there. Uh, the limitations aren't physical. Um, they are political. They're a matter of willpower, our willingness to scale up that technology and our willingness to level the playing field so that renewables can compete fairly with fossil fuels. Right now, we provide subsidies for fossil fuels. It's an unlevel market in favor of the source of energy that's polluting our environment. We need to level that playing field. And we do that through uh, carbon pricing, which Canada is implementing now. We do that through subsidies for renewable energy. Lots of ways to do that. Let's get going. You know, this is a win-win. We can move towards a more sustainable existence on this planet and provide jobs uh, for people at the same time. I've got a great comment here from uh, this is one of my favorite handles. Our audience member, some random guy says, you know, there are also those of us out there that acknowledge that we're doing massive damage, but we have no choice because our systems prevent us from acting in more meaningful ways on an individual basis. What would you say to him? Yeah, thanks. Uh, his uh, it was a some random, random guy. guy. Yeah, random that's right. Guy. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a great point. And it's actually something that I talk about quite a bit in the book. Look, there are lots of things that we can do in our everyday lives that decrease our environmental and our, our carbon footprint uh, specifically. Um, and they make us healthier. They save us money. They make us feel better. They set a great example for other people. But we can't allow that to be the primary focus. We can't view individual action alone as the solution to this problem because neither you nor I can provide subsidies for the renewable energy industry. Neither you nor I can block uh, additional fossil fuel infrastructure or put a price on carbon. These are only things that our politicians, our policymakers can do, and they're absolutely necessary if we are going to achieve the reductions, the massive reductions we need to over the next 10 years, nearly 50% reduction in carbon emissions within 10 years if we're going to keep warming below truly catastrophic levels. And so we need policy. We need systemic change. And only our policymakers, our politicians can do that. That means we have to vote for politicians who are willing to act on our behalf rather than on the polluting, uh, you know, the part of polluting interests. We have to use our voice in every way possible to hold our policymakers accountable so that they will make the decisions that help us 
speed up this transition that's already underway. It's happening. It's just not quite happening fast enough. That's why we need policies to accelerate it. Dr. Mann, I, I, I mean, you, I, I could talk to you for an hour about my home province of Alberta, which I love very much. Uh, let me be very clear. Um, but, beautiful but country. It is. No a, it's a beautiful part of the country. But there, there are things that are happening here that are very exciting. Um, you know, advancements in AI. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of brilliant tech researchers and, and, uh, and entrepreneurs here. Um, and, and there's a lot of brilliant people that are working in oil and gas as well. And they've done great work. There are some embarrassing things, too. You know, the government's spending three and a half million dollars on a, uh, you know, on a, on a witch hunt, they believe that there's a global campaign to landlock Alberta oil. They think that George Soros and the Rockefellers and everybody else are conspiring against Fort McMurray, Alberta, and they're spending millions to prove it. You know, there, there's 30 million dollars a year going to a war room, which is picking fights with like the streaming giant Netflix about the Bigfoot family cartoon. And they're embarrassing all of us. <laughs> Uh, along the way. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't very real problems. Uh, the provincial government here in Alberta is also fighting Ottawa on the carbon tax. Um, and that's a right. promise that the conservative premier, Jason Kenney, has made. You're advocating uh, carbon pricing here. I would say that, you know, not everybody, even those that are environmentally aware and, and proactive, not everybody believes that carbon pricing is the way to go. Uh, what are the Coles notes that, that give you the belief that it is a move in the right direction? Yeah, so it's important to realize it's not a silver bullet. It's just one of the tools in the toolbox. And I really feel we have to use all of the tools right now uh, to address this problem. So you have, you know, so-called supply uh, or demand side measures, pricing carbon, providing subsidies for renewable energy that helps level that playing field. Um, but you can also, you know, attack this problem from the supply side. And that means not funding additional infrastructure, um, new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, we've got to use all the tools in the toolbox, as I said. And carbon pricing, if done right, um, is actually progressive. The way it was done in Australia before the conservative government that came in got rid of it, uh, the way it has been implemented in Canada um, has been progressive. Uh, frontline communities, low-income families and earners have actually uh, gained because the revenue has been returned uh, preferentially uh, to lower-income folks. And so this can be done in a way that is just, that doesn't put undue burden on those with the least resources um, and, and does help level that playing field. And there are lots of ways to level the playing field. Carbon pricing is one of them. And I think it's great that uh, Canada has implemented it. I think you will see something similar by the U.S. Uh, and by the way, before I know we're just about done here, I would be remiss uh, if not to uh, provide a shout out for an event that I'll be doing next Wednesday virtually um, in Alberta at the University of Lethbridge, uh, co-sponsored by the uh, Calgary Climate Hub, where we will be uh, getting into all this stuff in, in greater detail. Lethbridge is an interest. I probably don't have to tell you this, but but Lethbridge is is a wind tunnel. I mean, if you if you travel through that Crow's Nest Pass area and and if you move, you know, east, west uh, across the southern part of the province, the, the resources there on the wind standpoint and you see evidence of it. There are some wind farms there. I think there's a, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a civilian and a civilian only, but it appears to me to be a ton of potential there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like I said before, you know, Alberta um, is on the front lines of sort of the climate policy battle. It's on the front lines of experiencing the impacts of climate change, for example, with the devastating 2016 wildfires. And it is on the front lines of having the solutions available um, and wind and solar. Uh, we can do it. Um, it's just a matter of us getting to work. 
Doctor, you, you, know, you talk about the new climate war, which, uh, you know, indicates that there have been other climate wars. And certainly, I mean, we just played a video that people can see on your Twitter account. And I mean, yeah. evidence uh, people can Google climate gate. People can see some of, you know, how you've been sued, how you have sued, how you've been accused of of, of, of high profile politicians and industry leaders of, 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 of cooking data, of misrepresenting data. I mean, you've been through a lot of it. You, you've been in the crosshairs of the fossil fuel industry for for probably 20 years or maybe more you might say um what are the next 20 years longer i don't know (laughs) i bet it i bet it does you ask any prize fighter that's taken punches for 20 years they'll tell you it feels like a lifetime but you've got a president here who campaigned on on taking action he's he's in the autumn of his political career so you expect that he's he's going to do something meaningful when the united states talks the world listens what are the next 20 years look like yeah, I mean, I'm very optimistic for all those reasons. And yeah, the old climate war was this uh, assault on the basic scientific evidence and, and an assault on the scientists like myself who had provided that evidence. And, um, you know, people understand that climate change is happening now. And so that that war has basically ended. The forces of inaction um, who are trying to slow down that clean energy transition, they know they can't deny climate change is happening. So they've turned to these other tactics that we've talked about to try to slow down um, this necessary transition off fossil fuels. But I am optimistic. Um, you know, there is urgency, as I said before, we can see the devastating impacts of climate change playing out in real time now. And that's absolutely been the case in Alberta. Um, but we also have agency. We can act in time to avert uh, ever worse climate change impacts. And we're seeing some real progress. And with the U.S. now back um, in a leadership position, Uh, helping lead the global effort uh, to act on climate. I think we're going to see a lot more pressure on some of the other intransigent actors like Australia under the Scott Morrison government that has backed off on on their commitments. I think we're going to see renewed pressure on everyone else. Now that the United States, the world's, um, you know, greatest polluter, um, our, our, uh, you know, we, we have contributed more cumulative carbon emission, uh, carbon pollution to the atmosphere than any other nation. And that means we have a moral obligation to lead on this issue. And under Biden, we're now doing that again. And I think that's going to help pave the way for meaningful action over the next couple of years globally. Doctor, one last question for you. I have to ask you this. I, I spoke yesterday with uh, a man by the name of David Knight Leg. He was uh, formerly uh, Premier Jason Kenney's principal secretary. He's now the CEO of an entity uh, called Invest Alberta. And so they're sort of taking the ESG file and they're doing what they can to draw international investment to Alberta. All of this to say the Paris Climate Accord came up and he kind of scoffed at it and he scoffed at the president uh, signing back on and and indicated that he doesn't believe that. And and again, maybe I'm not being fair to David Knight leg and sort of taking everything he said and boiling it down to one question for you. But he's cynical about the impact of it, sees it largely as a performative exercise. Do you believe that something like the Paris Climate Accord is, is valuable? And if so, why? Yeah, I do. I mean, we've seen real action. Uh, we've seen carbon emissions globally uh, stabilize. They stopped climbing. And then last year they came down about 7%. Um, now, a, a big part of that, of course, was the response to the pandemic, the lockdown, uh, economic slowdown, um, social distancing. But part of that, um, the International Energy Agency has actually looked at what's contributing to those trends. And they're seeing a decrease now in carbon emissions from electricity generation. And they attribute that not to an economic slowdown or anything like that. That trend over the last several years, they attribute to the increased 
um, uh, you know, the, the increased deployment of renewable energy globally. And so we are actually making that turnaround, uh, shifting, leveling the curve and now starting to bring it down. And in large part, that's because of what countries are doing to live up to their obligations under the Paris Accord. Here's the problem. Here's where I would agree with uh, that gentleman. Um, Paris alone isn't enough. It doesn't actually limit warming below dangerous levels without a substantial ratcheting up of the current commitments. So the current commitments that countries have made under Paris, they get us about halfway to the reductions we need. We've got to go beyond that. And that means when we meet later this year in Glasgow for the next conference of the parties, COP16, um, we're going to need to see a ratcheting up of those commitments from the various countries. And I think with the United States now helping lead the way along with Canada and other uh, major emitters, I think we finally arrived at our moment, uh, the moment where we really do see the pivot, where we we're, you know, we will look back um, and uh, we'll say to our children that we recognize the problem and acted before it's too late. Um, I think that will be our legacy. Dr. Michael E. Mann, uh, author of The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet, a climatologist, geophysicist, director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. You can catch Dr. Mann, as mentioned, at a climate of change at the Climate Symposium 2021. Uh, you can find that information on Facebook. We encourage you to check it out. Let me, hey, in closing, do you get to take credit that 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 2007 Nobel Prize? Do, do you get to take, you're a part of that. Are you a Nobel Prize winner by definition? You no, know, the, the, the wording that the IPCC has asked um, the authors to use is um, we contributed to the award of the Nobel Peace Prize because it was actually the IPCC as an entity that received it. Uh, I didn't get any gold, <laughs> but I did get a certificate from the IPCC that says that I you know, contributed to that effort. And of course, this is a group effort, right? It's no one scientist. Um, it's, it's the collective efforts of scientists around the world um, that have provided us the insights uh, that we now you know, need to make use of. Um, when it comes to acting on this crisis. Okay, so so in so many ways, as Wayne Gretzky contributed to the Stanley Cups won by the Edmonton Oilers, <laughs> you contributed to a Nobel Prize. Dr. Mann, thank you for this. And I would point out that I, I did it in part through my hockey stick, right? <laughs> hey, yeah, there you go. Hey, do you have, can, do you have 30 seconds? Can we talk about this? Sure. We, we have it handy. It's This is what? This is 23 years old now, I think, isn't it? It, it is. This it's more is, than two decades This old. is what put you on the map right here. It is. And, you know, and in Canadians, I think, have a special appreciation for hockey and hockey sticks. And so I think that analogy works well. It plays well in Canada. But unfortunately, it describes the shape of the temperature curve. And we've got to stop that blade of the curve from getting longer. That's what it's all about. Good stuff. Dr. Mann, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You bet. That's Dr. Michael E. Mann. You can check out his book uh, just recently released, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. We're going to get back uh, to what you have to say on this. A ton of comments on our live chat, and I'd love to read those. Plus, we've got some emails to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We're going to make some time for it today. We wanted to remind you that right now at parkpower.ca, you can save 70 bucks off your home or commercial internet, natural gas, uh, or electricity, Park Power proud partners of real talk and if you use the promo code 2021 dash real talk 70 bucks boom gone off that first bill park power is a proud uh, community entity to them it means they give back with their profits 10 percent of them to the nonprofits, their friends and neighbors the people that are making an impact in the communities where they live and work we're proud to partner with 
Park Power, who powers our Real Talk RJ hashtag. The team at Clean Air Club wants you to save money and breathe easy. When's the last time you changed your furnace filter? It takes literally 30 seconds, but some of us leave it for months and months. And the longer we leave it, the gnarlier it gets. It's so ignorable. It's so ignorable. You know what I like about Clean Air Club? They make you change it. And by that, I mean when you have a service that drops furnace filters on your porch, what excuse do you have what left? What excuse not do you to have left? It? What excuse do you have left, people? Like Sam said, they drop them right off at your door. Oftentimes, real talkers are reporting to us that they're getting their furnace filters the next day after they sign up at cleanairclub.ca. They also throw in a little gift for you. It's their way of supporting local, proud supporters of Real Talk. The team at Alta Moving and Storage knows that spring may mean a move for you, just like last spring was supposed to, and the spring before that, and the spring before that, but it's stressful, right? So you've not done it, you've delayed. There's that place you want to go. You know it's time to downsize. Maybe you're ready to upsize, but moving. Ugh. They've got these pod-style moving containers. They drop them off at your house on your pace. You fill it up, or you can hire labor. They can hook you up with that. You get the pod-style container filled up. They move it to your destination. Unload it at your pleasure, as they say. Plus, if you're looking for short or long-term storage, look no further than Alta Moving in Storage. You can find them online at altastorage.ca. Our thanks to Dr. Michael E. Mann. That, that, was a, that was the type of interview where I looked down at this clock I've got here and I went, oh, man, I could use another 60 minutes. With yeah, this I know guy. what you mean. You know, and, and real talkers uh, chiming in on mass with some great points. I love this one from Kelly who says, uh, you know, the right to repair. People are talking. There's, there were some farmers chiming in saying it's difficult for them to turn wrenches on their own gear now. They can't do it anymore. And it's not just farmers. I mean, you look at you look at any of the real, I mean, especially imports, but you look at the vehicles these days, not even imports. I mean, even the North American built, it, it's not like it used to be. Well, it, I, I would say, and I, I say this, they're, they're an innovative, wonderful company that everybody loves. Tesla is like the worst culprit for this. Like you can't have your vehicle fixed by anybody but Tesla. Yeah, well, it's like Apple, and, and they yeah they do everything they can to lock other mechanics out of it. Yeah, well, which is yeah. a smart business move for oh, Tesla. It's a very smart business move, but it's terrible for consumers. Yeah, and I thought you were going to talk about people wrenching on them themselves. I'm thinking I don't care how smart you are. I don't think you should be turning wrenches on a Tesla. You know, it's interesting. A a shadow industry that reuses old Tesla parts has sort of developed because it's, and it's completely underground. Like Tesla doesn't sanction this, but you're seeing people now that will, um, they'll say like, Oh, these batteries have some life left in them and they build battery arrays in their house to, to get juiced by solar panels. Like it's this, this weird sort of shadow side industry that's developed around, around broken Tesla's. I like hearing stories like this because it reminds me that there are so many people smarter than me. You know, it <laughs> yeah. keeps me humble hearing things like this. Uh, Kelly says the right to repair, less packaging, reusable packaging, a movement away from fast fashion. That's a great conversation, Kelly, to have. It says we'll all help, but we need to put the blame at the feet of large corporations, too. Um, like I said, time flew with Dr. Mann, so we didn't get a chance. I mean, he writes about individual responsibility versus corporate culpability which is an important conversation to have. He talks about the inactivists, he calls them. You know, there are the activists. He talks about the inactivists in the gun and the tobacco industries, firearms and tobacco, and says that the fossil fuel industry is essentially taking a page from those two industries on inaction. I, I, sorry, all that comes to mind right now is the movie Thank You for Smoking. You've yeah, seen that, right? Great film. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the tribunal of all the evils of America that meet all the time. 
yeah. the tobacco industry, the gun industry. I can't remember what the third one was. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. Uh, James says, I think that the unfortunate war on carbon misplaces the actual important war on real pollution. Interesting take. Um, James says nuclear is only viable once it has zero toxic waste. Scott says the oil and gas industry claims to want the free market, but they are massive beneficiaries of corporate welfare. Hmm. Matt Alex says Jess Bowen Adler, the gold standard and talk show host, never boring, always topical, says let's get his subscriptions to 10,000. That I is agree. high praise. I agree. Thank you. I agree. Uh, Adler is, as I've always called him, the titan of talk and a very good friend of mine. So I appreciate that, Matt Alex. You just made my day. And I do appreciate. Let's get our subscriptions to 10,000. What the hell's taking so long? Tell your friends. Tell your family. Share the word. Spread it around. Subscribe to our YouTube. Subscribe to our podcast. Share the interviews that mean something to you. You know, you can always get us a talk at RyanJesperson.com. And that's exactly what Anne-Marie did. And I wanted to read this. Uh, she caught the show that we did uh, not this past Tuesday. So, so not two days ago, but nine days ago. It was the show on women's health. And she says, I was so glad for that show and the challenges surrounding healthcare, in particular for women, the advice, the information from your panelists was greatly appreciated. And I learned a lot. I loved that the doctors addressed small factors that lead people to be hesitant in seeking healthcare, like parking at the hospital. You know, people won't go to the hospital because they know they can't find parking and it has obviously such a detrimental impact. And then Emory says, and then the bigger factors, like not knowing the signs and symptoms of heart attacks in women. And Anne-Marie's right. If you missed our panel, uh, what was it? Was it March 9th, Sam? I'm trying to do the math off. The top. I think it was March 9th was the Tuesday. Um, and, and if you're a woman or there's a woman in your life, you have for, for no other reason than understanding the difference between symptoms of a heart attack between women and men. I had no idea. And it sounds like Anne-Marie learned something, too. She said, I did mention in your live chat that being ignored by ER physicians has not been my experience in Edmonton, despite some others sharing a different account. She says, I've been taken seriously and treated well, not only by my family doc, but ER physicians as well. I don't delay going to see the doctor. And, and I'm quite, Anne-Marie says, I would describe myself as aggressive. Well, let's say assertive, aggressive in receiving care. I think we have amazing health care providers, and I feel grateful for these people. She says, I'd love to see an episode in future focused on issues around men's health. Uh, because the fact remains that women do, statistically speaking, outlive men. And there are reasons for that. And Marie says, I think these reasons need to be explored and made known. And I'd love to hear thoughts from men's health care providers around suicide, workplace injuries and deaths, homelessness, prostate cancer, heart health, and other important focuses. That from Anne Marie. That was a great email. I love this one from Russ. It's not lost on Sam and I because we saw this. We, we touched on it yesterday with our with our real talk RJ hashtag that that sometimes it'll be about what's going on on the show today. And sometimes it'll be about episodes that are from ages ago, or at least it, it feels that way. It's the beauty of being on the Internet. There's yeah. a there is a permanent archive of real talk from. Yeah. Day one. So people people find the show. And then they go, wait a second, they've been doing they've been doing they've got like 75 shows under their belt and people are going back and listening to them. And that includes Russ, who just tuned in to the shows from early February. He says, I'm a bit behind on your podcasts, but that interview you did with Chrissy Stroop, the ex evangelical, he says, I, I, I blew my mind. 
He says, and now you're reading your letter from your cousin Lisa. You remember this letter that I wrote, Sam? My cousin Lisa's uh, living with her family in Germany, and she listens to the podcast, which means the world to me. And, and she wrote a letter based on her experience with evangelicals at a, I, I don't know if they call it a mission school, but like a boarding school. It was a powerful letter from early February. Russell says, so it's, so it's, it's, it's not mind-blowing material in one sense, because I think a lot of people suspect it as much. But to hear insiders share their stories of the dysfunctional world of evangelicalism is so rich, it's taking me considerable amounts of time to digest it all. What a mess this is. He says, I'm just trying to unravel one layer of a belief system that has damned me personally for defending the environment. And here I am. He says, please keep the guests coming. We tune in for fantastic speakers. I hope you'll be excited about Michael E. Mann today and Karen Gosby. Oh, my gosh. Karen's story. Oh, yeah. And Mayor Ned Nenshi says your guests actually talk. It's actually real, real words, real talk, concepts, stories, science, logic, reason. And he says, and you do cover the spectrum. Even your interview with Danielle Smith. Russ says in between listening to the podcast, I'm searching Twitter for your guests to make sure I can follow up with them. He says, I could ramble and rant forever, but I won't. Your show's right on the money. Thanks for getting this stuff out there. That from Russ. I love it, Russ. That's fantastic. I want to get to more of these emails on, on, on things like treatment, resistance, depression. And I want to get to an email. Somebody wrote in to say, I'm so glad you got fired. And I took it like a bit of a punch to the face until I realized it was a big compliment. Maybe we'll read that too. Before we get there, we want to remind you that Friesen Brothers has just opened its 15th Alberta location in South Edmonton, just off the Anthony Henday at Rabbit Hill Road. And more and more of you are chiming in, letting us know what you love about the new store. If you've never been there and you're going seriously, you're going on like this about a grocery store, you got to go see. The minute you walk in, you're going to go, oh, so this is what all the hype is about. Maybe it's the smash burger station that'll catch your eye with real Alberta beef. Maybe it's the fresh sandwich shop with the sourdough bread baked in-house from their sourdough starter, Charlie, who was born in 2015, we learned from their baking team. It might be the world famous cinnamon buns. It might be the Alberta honey display. It might be the root cellar or the baking pantry. It might be their braised beef short rib. Whatever it is, there's something for you at Friesen Brothers. Vegan options, too, clearly labeled. Friesen Brothers is proudly Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. The team at Westworld Computers knows that not everybody has a massive budget, but most folks at some point are going to need to upgrade their tech. That's why whether it's an Apple Watch, an iPhone, an iPad, an iMac, or a MacBook Pro... They've got you covered. I do my best to not miss anything in the lineup, but I probably have, Sam. Well, there's the Apple lineup is long and vast, but you've covered the basics. (laughs) We've got the basics. We've got the basics. We've got the basics and whatever we've missed, they've got there. They also have the hundred adapters you're going to need for your stuff. Yeah, very well said. And don't we know it? Oh, yes. This entire studio is powered by Westworld Computers, and we're grateful for the work that Daryl and his team have done. Whether it's new or gently pre-owned, you can find it all for a price that works for you at Westworld Computers. If getting into the trailer hauling game is your deal, talked to a buddy yesterday. He's so excited about the new fifth wheel they've bought. He's going to try to pull it with an SUV. No bueno. 
Whoa, 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 Bad idea. How do you pull a fifth wheel with an SUV? Well, he's going to try. Well, not a fifth wheel per okay. se. It's a 30-foot trailer. Yeah. And it's and he's he's under the belief that he can fit it just under the weight limit. And we're trying to teach him what, like, hauling wet means. And we're trying to teach him that things like, I don't know, bikes, fishing tackle, food, beer, it all weighs something. And your SUV is not the rig to pull that trailer. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge has the best selection of half-ton, three-quarter ton, one-ton, and heavier haulers. The Dodge Ram lineup well represented at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Man, we get a ton of emails, and, and we wanted to get to as many as we can. Let me get to this one, because this was kind of funny. I like when we just leave space for emails. Yeah, well, because we yeah. don't do it enough. I know. And so you and I said yesterday, we said, after Michael Mann, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Plus, we got all these emails, so we're going to let the show breathe a little bit. Um, I got this email from Colette, and it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> Shane says, everybody, did you see that? Ryan looked right at me. Shane, are you trying to pull, pull a 30-foot trailer with an SUV? Don't do it. Uh, it's not a good idea. Although, you know, somebody's going to, someone's got like the SUV with like 700 horsepower and they're going to call in and say, we're just fine. We got the extra, the rear diff and the brakes to handle it. Rawr. Uh, Colette writes into the show and, and I get this, this subject line that says, so glad you got fired. And I went, oh man, another one of these, another one of these. And because I'm a glutton for punishment, I opened it and I read it. <laughs> and then I realized right away that Colette is an absolute gem. And she said, I've been meaning to write this for a while now. Ever since, to my amazed delight, I first caught the Real Talk podcast. What finally prompted me to actually write was when your theme song by Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen, released by Fallen Tree Records, reached the recesses of my brain. And I realized that what you and Sam have been doing every day has been indeed lifting me up. She says, you see, I, I live in ground zero of UCP land. I live in Jason Nixon's riding around Rocky Mountain House. And, and I've despaired at finding more than a handful of like minded people here in Alberta. People that take real issue with this government and people that wonder what could have possibly happened to this beautiful province what a gift real talk has been in these tough times says colette not only do i feel i've found an entire community of kindred spirits with your listeners and your real talk supporters but you've also expanded my horizons into countless topics and people through your guests i've become far less angry and far more hopeful and compassionate sam's giving me a little music bed we'll call it says, I become more hopeful and compassionate by association with real talkers. That's a compliment to every single one of you. Colette says, thanks for the amazing job. And thank you to real talkers for your mutual support, kindness, and hopeful vision. She says, and I'm glad you got fired because I was wary of Alberta Talk Radio. And I probably would have never heard of you if your supporters hadn't raised such a big stink over your dismissal. That from Colette. Well, you should be wary of Alberta Talk Radio, Colette. And I'm very grateful to have you tuning in. Beautifully done. Beautifully written. Thank you so much. This one's a tough read. And this is from V. We're going to call her because she's asked not to be identified. V says, and this ties into our conversation earlier this morning with, with Karen Gosby uh, and with Mayor Nahed Nenshi about Calgary's plan the, on addiction and, and mental health supports that they believe will be able to be applied to communities across Canada and around the world. V says our health system 
uh, needs an overhaul in managing chronic mental illness. I wish I could say, I wish I could share, Ryan, with your audience who I am, but mental illness remains a stigma that could seriously affect my employment. I have what's called treatment-resistant depression. I was diagnosed with depression more than 20 years ago, and I've tried at least four different antidepressant meds. I've been in outpatient treatment. I've been in a crisis ward for a few days, and I talked to a half a dozen different therapists over the past few years, all while living in Calgary. So my experience is very Alberta-centric. If you've never had to try multiple antidepressants to find one that works, let me tell you, it sucks. You have to take a drug long enough to know if it might work and then the side effects will go away and determine how badly they will or will not impact your life. And then if it's determined that medication isn't for you, you usually have to slowly reduce it until it's out of your system before trying another one. And each time you try this, it equals months of your life. And at the end, all you've done is eliminate another option. As I said, I did four in a row until I didn't know which symptoms were depression and which were side effects. The last one gave me brain zaps as I tried to get off it. I mean, imagine imagine being randomly struck by electric shocks to your brain and your nerves throughout the day. For my in and out of hospital treatment, every time I left with, with no concrete plan, just a handful of brochures of what I needed to do next to access help. Now imagine being responsible to seek further help, you know, to call a number, to share your desire, to kill yourself again with a stranger, to try to see if there's a match for you. You know, there are limited sessions while finding getting out of bed and taking a shower. One of the hardest things you can do. I've maintained full time employment through most of my depression, working ironically in health and safety for oil and gas. The average person I meet has no idea that I'm living with chronic depression. I usually or likely take more sick days than the average employee, but I'm smart. And I work fast and I'm generous in helping others. I'm usually considered the funny one in any setting I'm in. Most wouldn't believe I had my husband drive me to work that day because I was afraid that if I walked, I might step in front of traffic. The option of suicide, once it's with you, is just a weighted bag that you have to carry around. Stop thinking about ending your life is like saying... Don't think about a white bear. Once it's on the list of treatment options, you can't remove it. At least I haven't been able to. So almost every day I remind myself of other options that I need to try first. I remind myself why I shouldn't do it today. If I don't integrate it into my thought process, I'm scared it will sneak up behind me and get me. Like ignoring a malignant tumor growing in your body best to keep an eye on it and measure its growth if it's bigger today what can i do to make it smaller tomorrow nobody seems to be able to cut it out we love a success story nobody wants to hear about stage four most friends last six months once you start talking about it that's the threshold for somebody hopeless i've found they get worn out after you don't get better go for walks Take vitamin D, take vitamin B, help others. You'll feel better about yourself. I do all these things, says V. Don't just complain about a problem. Come up with a solution. Well, people with chronic depression should be assigned a personal health assistant. I mean, somebody to schedule doctor's appointments and, and keep track of meds and other things. Arrange transportation. Expecting someone with a mental illness to access available help is like telling someone on crutches to just climb Mount Everest. Keep going. You can do it. The dreaded hang in there 
I've literally had somebody text me the picture of the cat hanging on the clothesline. There needs to be walk-in therapy. If you can't see your regular therapist so you can get to a walk-in to assist in a mini-crisis, there needs to be better access to counseling and medication management. I would love it, Ryan, if you could talk to someone on the show about treatment-resistant depression. We need to stop talking about suicide as if it was the fault of a weak person. That person may have been carrying a heavier and heavier bag until it was too much. We need support in carrying our bags. That from V. To me, that is (laughs) such a reminder of, first of all, the power of this community that someone feels free to share, feels supported enough to share. And it also reminds us that people are carrying heavy bags, Sam, every single morning. When they join us here on the show, I hope that V is listening to me reading this letter because the live chat right now is very encouraging. People are sharing their own struggles. People are making suggestions Two beaver says it sounds to me like this person's been digging around in in my head. Kim says the letter's heartbreaking. Alana says this email's hitting me hard. I know this path. This is heartbreaking. What tremendous strength in sharing this email. This is really beautiful. Wigwith says those two emails back to back were great. These are the types of messages to the show that fuel our editorial process, that put things on our radar, that prompt us to to reach out to professionals and deliver back to you. You know, this is your show. We talk about the Real Talk community. That's not some sort of marketing ploy. That's not some, some, some you know, sort of phrase that somebody whipped up for us to get more subscriptions on the podcast. It's because we feel that way, Sam. Quite frankly, it wasn't even something that came from us. That came organically. Yeah. The community just developed as soon as we launched the show. Yeah. So we're so grateful. Joe says I should have Blake Lotz on the show. Blake's an incredible advocate for... For, for uh, people that are that are walking and living with mental health challenges, and, and I'm a huge fan of hers. So uh, that's certainly, yeah, I'd love to have Blake on the show. Absolutely. Uh, Tawny's listening says, that for me puts everything in perspective. Mark says, depression's a tough one. Taking action that creates hope helps. Rhiannon says, the email hit me hard. There needs to be immediate support. Thank you for sharing. Whew. <laughs> I appreciate that, everybody. And... Uh, <sighs> Yeah. How you doing, Sam? I'm doing okay. I'm kind of digesting that email, digesting yeah. our show here. It's been uh, a show where we, you know, we started on a mental health track and then we went on to a climate policy track and now we're back to some emails on a mental health track. It's it's a little heavy to take in, but, but it's, we never want, it's important and we, we, we take this stuff on. And we don't and we don't want I mean, we're we're going to have heavy conversations. Absolutely. And 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 that's the type of thing. We do, we don't want some sort of a pithy shallow end lame um you know program that nobody you, wants you sort to of to you show. tune into and and and, and you tune into because it's easy and you tune into it because you're never challenged you know that's that's not the idea here the idea um and i mean some of you are writing in right now to say i mean this from shalane wow the mental health segments that real talk has presented have been like free therapy for me and my friends and family that's music to our ears and we'll continue to bring you that and we'll continue to maintain those commitments. Uh, we'll continue to have conversations that we know are important and we have the confidence that they're important because you're telling us exactly that. 
We're grateful for the support of our partners, including the teams at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They wanted us to remind you that they've got that loaded steakhouse burger as their national promotion for the month of March. And when I say loaded steakhouse burger, something happens to Sam Brooks' posture. You actually perk up when I said loaded steakhouse burger. That's, that's true. It's like it's it's like it's like Pavlov's whistle that I have in my I have Pavlov's or was it a bell? It was a bell. Yeah, it was a Pavlov's bell. Pavlov's dog had a bell. It was a bell. Yeah. I'm doing a really good job of like of, of hitting the, the pop culture or the literary or, or the whatever references like at a, about 65 famous per- scientific experiments 70 70 accuracy <laughs> 65 70 the other day it was lindo who wrote in to tell me that my my uh you know peter denying christ cock crowing story was way off on the details too but we got the general gist of it the loaded steakhouse burger this is the first time that peter denying christ has been part of a dairy queen ad i guarantee it They've also got a great two for five dollar treat night after 8 p.m. every weeknight at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. It means for five bucks, five bucks, you can treat yourself mix and match any two medium dipped cones or sundays. Today, would you be a dipped cone or a sunday guy? Anything changed today? I still want this dipped sunday to happen. Oh, okay. somebody needs to make me a dipped. You know, what I was saying, okay, you know, we were talking about you're that delivery guy. dipped cones. You're the other that day. guy. Yeah. What? Why doesn't Dairy Queen have a fleet of trucks with ice cream machines mounted to them? They can just show up and make you a cone right there. It sounds very expensive. Okay, fine. It sounds like it would cost them about $14 to get to your house to sell you a $2 this ice cream This is why cone. I work for Real Talk and not Dairy Queen. <laughs> yeah, well, neither of us work for... I guess in a way we work for Dairy Queen. The team at Local Waste loves to talk trash. Just wait till tomorrow. By the way, we'll make this last call for trash talk. You can send in your gripes. You can send in, what do we call them? The rants and raves. Whatever it is that's, you know, the bee in your bonnet. Whatever whatever it is that has you feeling a little, a little something you got to get off your chest. Doesn't have to be about politics. Doesn't have to be about pipelines. I mean, we, we get ones about people that don't signal in traffic. I could do an hour on people that don't wave in traffic. I mean, yesterday, I went way out of my way. I'm kidding. I went way out of my way to let somebody in in traffic. Like, I like I had to ease off the accelerator. I had to let them in in front of me, which meant I got to my destination later, right? I could have been there half a second earlier, but I didn't care because I'm a nice guy. No wave. No wave. There's Lucky. just more proof that everybody needs to embrace the zipper merge, but I'm just going to put that right there. No, but this is like the zipper merge is 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 a strategy. The wave is like a societal pillar. That is very true. You know, there's a real difference here. And once we've lost waving in traffic, you know, what's next? I'm kind of doing a trash talk right now, if you think about it, minus the rock and roll. And I'm not calling for the rock and roll. We got to save it. Save it for Friday. The band's not even warmed up yet. They've not even had their Jack Daniels and coffee. That's they're not, true. They're not. They're not ready. even here. They're not ready for trash talk. Yeah. No, because no, they're the, the 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 they're part of the uh, what's it? What's the music equivalent of ACTRA? Oh, like the union for yeah, the. Yeah, 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 anyway, yeah. I wish I knew. I don't know. Doesn't matter. We are still doing the local waste spot, which is now into its third or fourth minute. At localwaste.ca, in addition to sponsoring Trash Talk each and every uh, Friday on Real Talk, you know, they also actually manage waste uh, for companies big and small, for the ma and pa shops, the retails, all the way up to the malls and the hotels and everything else. 
Local waste is your local go-to. You want to be able to call somebody uh, that's in charge of your waste management and talk to them by their first name. You'll find them at localwaste.ca. The team at McBain Camera, we are thrilled to have them on board. I'm surprised, Sam, that you have not yet gone and and, and, and bought a new camera uh, because I know you're a camera guy. Like, I have a few of them, but You have on. a few, but there's always room for more. There is always room for more. <laughs> like the Panasonic DC-G9. This is the one that's built for speed. I noticed a real talker thought we were bluffing the other day when we pointed out that the, the G9 can lock focus in a fraction of a second and shoot up to 20 frames per, sec- per second. He said, come on, 20 frames per second? It's doable, which is amazing if you're, well, I don't know, your kids are playing sports or you want to make sure that you get that perfect shot of your, you know, you've been training your dog to run and then catch the ball in midair and you want to have that photo of your border collie, jaws open, snapping that, you know, because you've got your neighbor, they're always posting photos of the dachshund and you're so sick of the photos of the dachshund because your border collie deserves way more praise. The Panasonic Lumix G9 camera is the camera for you. Plus, it's got that five-axis image stabilization that helps you make sure your photos are tack sharp. Now, when you go to McBainCamera.com right now, into the promo code REALTALK, one word, at checkout, they're going to give you a free spare battery with your order, which is why I'm surprised Sam hasn't done it, because Sam's all about the spare batteries. McBain has a knowledgeable staff eager to help all your questions at McBainCamera.com, or, of course, you can shop safely at one of their six Alberta locations. And finally, we're very excited about this. Uh, Coming up on, uh, you're going to want to circle your calendar Friday, April 2nd. We're going to be featuring the winners of the University of Alberta's uh, 3MT competition. Okay, this is the three-minute thesis, and you can check it out right now at uab.ca slash 3MT uab.ca slash 3mt these are some of the more brilliant researchers at the university of alberta boiling down their projects into three minute bite-sized chunks on april 1st you can watch the competition live i am honored to be hosting it and then again on april 2nd you'll see the winner the second place the first runner-up and the People's Choice winner featured on our Real Talk Roundtable. That's coming up Friday, April 2nd. What a show, Samuel Brooks. Tomorrow, we're going to do some more heavy lifting. And we know that you're there with us as we talk about violence against women, as we talk about targeted violence and racism affecting minority communities, including Asian Canadians and Asian Americans. We're going to get to more of your emails You can reach us at talk at ryanjesperson.com. And of course, we'll remind you about our question of the day. We'd love to hear what you think at ryanjesperson.com. We'll talk to you tomorrow.